No, I don't think yonder. I don't remember growing up here in yonder. <laughs> didn't, we didn't. And uh, I, uh, the other difference is, what, what do you call the three meals that you have each day? Do you call it breakfast? Dinner and supper. So we never used supper. We, it was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So then I had to learn this. No, it's breakfast, dinner, and supper. I think there was an old uh, song, Come home, come home, it's supper time. So if you're in the north, you'd sing, Come home, come home, it's dinner time. The shadows lay So little difference. Uh, the... My, my background, though, was it was kind of a hybrid of Southern and Northern um, in the uh, late 50s. My mother and her parents, so my grandpa, um, he, he, they were all from Southeast Missouri, from um, Sykeston and Dexter, and Poplar Bluff. Any of you know where that is? Uh, those real flat land. And my grandpa farmed. My grandpa Veith, he was German, and I remember his mother, my great-grandmother, uh, she came over to this country, settled in Bern, Bern, or Bernie, Indiana, and she was 13, 14 years old, and came here from Germany. And I remember my listening to my grandmother yodel. Uh, she would yodel. My dad would play the guitar, and she would yodel. So I have some memories of that. But my my mom's side moved from the south uh, to to Flint, Michigan, where I grew up, and um, and he w moved up there. Uh, he was farming, and he uh, also had a little country store. And I remember people telling me that well, the reason that your grand your grandpa uh, wasn't really able to make it is because when he had that country store. He would always let people come in there and, and put things on their tab. And so there was a lot of poor people going through some hard times, and my grandpa uh, would never turn them, turn them away, uh, letting them have food, and he just got where he couldn't, he couldn't run his business. So he moved to Michigan and worked for General Motors, worked in a metal fabrication plant there. And then on my, on my dad's side, he grew up south of Nashville, in an area uh, called Tullahoma, Tennessee. Any of you ever hear Tullahoma? It's where the walking walking horse capital of the U.S. and that was around Shelbyville, uh, Coffee uh, Coffee County uh, near Lynchburg. I had several uncles work for uh, the the Jack Daniels Distillery in Lynchburg. I actually, had one uncle, my uncle Bud. He worked there, but he swore he never he wasn't a drinker, which I don't believe. But he said he wasn't a drinker, but he was an official whiskey taster. And so I said, well, you, so he would, they, they really, Jack Dan, they still have them. They have uh, men that they, they would literally, I don't know, whatever, they probably train them or whatever, but he, would, he was a whiskey taster. Now, he did other things, but I guess when these vats or batches would come up and after they had set so long in those wooden barrels, he would taste whiskey. So, but my dad... He grew up there. He was one of 14 kids, and uh, when he was 16, he quit high school and moved to Flint, Michigan as well, uh, and worked for General Motors. He did that for a year, um, and then when he was 17, my grandmother was killed 
she was walking to church. They went and it was in the country and my dad still had some siblings at home and they were walking to church on a sunny morning in an old dirt country road and a man came over the hill in an old Ford and he was hit, he was intoxicated and he hit my, my grandmother and killed her uh, in front of all those little kids. And so my grandpa was having a hard time. So my dad left Flint when he was 17, went back south uh, to Tullahoma and was going to farm, which is really what he wanted to do, farm with his dad. And his dad had an agreement with him. He couldn't pay him. He said, but if you farm with me for a year, uh, at the end of the year when crops and things come in, then I'll pay you. And at the end of the year, if my dad worked there, he, he just said my, my grandpa wasn't in a position to pay him. And he just couldn't continue to do that. So then he went back to Michigan and then stayed there and um, worked for General Motors. So most of the people that I grew up with were Southerners, uh, people from West Virginia, um, Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, Missouri, some from Kentucky. And then uh, they all moved to the north during this kind of industrialization time and to, to get jobs. And none of them really liked working in those factories. And, uh, and those factories back then were much different than the factories like where this Toyota plant is here. They were not like these plants. <laughs> and I worked in, the, in one of them for several months when I got out of high school before the first oil embargo. Any of you remember the first oil embargo hit in 1979 when and that's when the auto industry really began to change and things. Um, so so I w I w most of the kids that I grew up with and played with were all people from the South um, Southerners and all those kids who play. We also had people that moved, uh, came there from Greece. And so my best friend growing up was Gus Cosmonopoulos. Does that sound Greek? <laughs> so me and Gus grew up as little boys and we went all the way through high school together. And there were people that moved there from Lex, uh, from uh, Mexico. Uh, we had people in our neighborhood, uh, the, uh, Chicho Pacheco and Danny Pacheco, Pacheco, they were from Mexico. And then Greg and Susan Luna, Mike Luna, the Lunas, they were my, so my, the, where I grew up, I mean, it was uh, Hispanic, Greek, <laughs> hillbilly, Southern, redneck, Northerners, and we, we were just a, a mishmash, a hybrid, and uh, so that was, that was my background grip. So I, I knew some about Southern culture because my mother cooked Southern, and my, my and so I ate Southern food, and but I also grew up eating a lot of Northern food, and there was a strong Greek presence where I grew up, and so we ate gyros and um, conies and all kinds of other kinds of Greek food. So I, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a mishmash. I'm just a a mess of all different kind of cultures and backgrounds. Uh, I, but looking back on it, God God really used that I think in my life to. Uh, to teach me to be around lots of different cultures and peoples and styles. My best friend in high school was black. His name was Tyrone Mansfield. And Tyrone, uh, black guy, uh, we were good friends through high school and played football together. Play, and uh, he was a really good running back. And my dad liked him because he was a good, my dad grew up south, but he didn't care for blacks. That's why he was raised, black people. Um, and I could tell you stories about that. And, but I, he liked my friend Tyrone because Tyrone was a good running back. And so Tyrone was over my house, uh, stayed all night with me. We slept in the same bed together. And my grandparents thought that was horrible and made comments to me about that. I didn't know any different. 
uh, Hispanic. I dated a Hispanic girl in high school. My gr grandparents didn't like that. So, I, and they, yeah, so I, uh, but I think looking back on all that, God used all of that to really, uh, to shape my attitude and my perspectives and views towards people. And that God loves all people, all people groups, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. He loves us all. And uh, we care. We, and, uh, we, so that's a little bit about my background. That's a totally unplanned, came out of a question about did you use yonder? So we didn't use yonder and we didn't talk about supper. So a little bit different. Just amazing, uh, you know. And you know, the other thing too, when I when I read the book of Ephesians, I think about how uh, all of those differences, like that, cultural differences, skin tones, colors, backgrounds, foods, traditions, all of those different kinds of things. Uh, Paul says when he writes to the Ephesians, especially in chapter two, he talks about us all being one new man. He talks about one new race. And there are seven mysteries listed in the New Testament. Seven mysteries. And one of those mysteries is how uh, um, Paul in Ephesians describes us all being made one. The mystery of this new race. This new family that God brings together through Christ Jesus. Through the gospel. And you see that in Acts. We've been looking at how the gospel just penetrates. Breaks down every barrier. The gospel goes forth, so Jew broke down gent uh, barriers between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Paul says that in Galatians, right? There's any male, female, slave, free. All of us are what? One in Christ Jesus. And so that's the gospel. I'm not sure that the church has fully grasped that yet, uh, we, but uh, that's, uh, that's one of the awesome things about our God and about our gospel. And it'll be a, also, as we're singing about the end times as Don was leading us through those songs we'll certainly be together in eternity right so in Revelation 7 you see all of us gathered together I kind of wonder what language we're all going to speak up there have you ever thought about that right in Acts chapter 2 language barriers were broken down and they all heard the gospel in one language there's a few places uh, I have to relook at it, but there's a couple places in the book of Revelation where it talks about a new language, a new heavenly language that we'll all speak together and here on this new heaven and new earth when, and as God, Christ restores all of this. And so, but, uh, so it'd be kind of cool. No language barriers. And every color, every tribe, tongue, all worship in the Lord. So that's going to be an awesome day. We are, our reading this week takes us to First uh, Thessalonians, so we've been reading through Acts, and then as Paul gets into his second missionary journey, our reading takes us over to Thessalonians, or we went to Galatians, and then now we're in Thessalonians. Uh, so you think about why is that? Why didn't you just, the, the reading plan allow us just to continue to go through the book of Acts, and that's because this reading plan kind of follows uh, the, the chronology somewhat trying to a little bit of the book of Acts. So as Paul is on his second missionary journey and he, you know, he comes first when he comes out of Antioch goes through this church planning process and so if you think about his mission trips he is uh, sharing the gospel, Luke 10, looking for people of peace, looking for people who are receptive to the gospel and people believe it says they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they're baptized. 
So you, you think about Paul moving to these cities, finding people of peace, people that are receptive. Remember the Luke also says, and if you go, Jesus said, you go into a city and people aren't receptive, what does he tell them these are early apostles to do? Just shake up the dust off your feet and move on. And so you travel on. You're looking for people who are receptive. Um, and I, I still think that people are receptive today. There's, especially when people are going through crises and difficult times and loss, they're, they're receptive. Uh, when immigrants move to this country um, and they're here, uh, they're receptive. Uh, they're, they're, they're teachable. They're open. And, and we've, we've got to just continue to be intentional like the Apostle Paul to engage people, uh, to have friendships, be kind, get into conversations with people uh, to, in order to share the gospel. And I, I told you, uh, mentioned this not long ago, a week or so ago, I'm just having some doctor when we have a couple tests, and so I had this test, so I'm laying down this girl. Is, you know what ultrasound is, right? All you ladies know what ultrasound is. So I had an ultrasound on my heart, which is fine. It came out fine. But I'm laying on the table, <laughs> no shirt on, this young lady here, she's got that jelly on there, and she's moving that thing around, checking my heart. So I thought this would be a good time, just to have a just maybe a easy, just just nice, easy conversation with her. So we're talking to her. She's moved to New Albany. She's working up here at the hospital. She knows Doctor Lowmeyer. She's in the radiology department, and she's a single mom with a little three-year-old son. And I just hey, well. Tell me about you, and are you from here? And no, no, where, where are you from? So she's talking. We're having this kind of, and I'm listening to her, and so got it led to an opportunity to say, hey, do, you do are you raising your little boy in church anywhere? And she said, no, and I need to. I said, well, where do you live? She said, well, you know where the Lowe's is, that road? I said, yeah. And she said, there's some apartments back in. She said, I have an apartment back there, just me and my little boy. And I said, well, you're not too far. Do you know where Highway 15 Hillcrest Baptist Church is? Yeah. I said, why don't you come bring your little boy? She said, you know, I need to do that. She said, I, I need to raise him in church. I was raised in church. And so, I, see, I, it's just easy. <laughs> it's easy to get into conversations with people where you don't have to pound on them with a Bible or, you know, you just talk to them and, and then trust and see with the Lord. And sometimes if they don't want to talk, what do they do? You can tell they don't want to talk. If they don't talk, I leave them alone. Kind of in my mind, shake the dust off my feet. They're not receptive. And if they're not receptive, uh, that means the Holy Spirit's got some more work to do in them to make them receptive. And if they're not receptive, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So just leave them alone. Then try to be friendly to them. So uh, I'm just saying, engaging people. People are receptive. There are people of peace. So uh, we're, we're in... Um, uh, first and second Thessalonians. So uh, Paul sets out on the second journey, just going to review and then we'll look at this. Uh, and he goes back on the second journey when he and Silas leave uh, Antioch. Their strategy is let's go back and revisit all of the previous churches that we had been to. That sounds like a good strategy. Let's go back and check on them, strengthen them, encourage them, see how their faith is holding. He, he, Paul many times talks about he's concerned that their faith is in vain, that they're not staying with it. How many of you know people 
who they'll believe, but they're kind of like some of those soil that Jesus describes in Matthew 13. Some spring up for a little while, and they seem like they've got it, and then they just they kind of wither and fall off. So Paul's concerned about these people. He goes back, let's go back and revisit them, checking on them. So they, they leave Antioch, they travel north, they go northwest, they go into um, the Galatia area. That's why we read Galatians. And then they go, you remember Paul, this, this vision about going over to Macedonia? You all remember that? And so what is it? He eventually makes it over to Macedonia and he's ministering over there. So this is new territory that he gets to. And so while he is in uh, that area, uh, he hits some different cities. And one of those cities is Thessalonica. And so um, he's in Thessalonica uh, or or. Yeah, in, Thess- in Thessalonica, and um, he, he has some success. He preaches the gospel. Many believe, and one of his strategies when these areas, he would always go into Jewish synagogues. So when the Jews left Jerusalem and they had to leave the temple, they had no worship place. And so synagogues begin to develop. And these were worship places that were established for Jews to worship. And, and so when Paul would go into the city, he would strate- think about how strategic that is. So how would I share the gospel and say, I'm going to find a Jewish synagogue. And because if I go to synagogue, I know there's going to be people there who believe in God and believe in the Old Testament and, and the laws of Moses and they're going to believe the prophets, and they're going to have the writings. And so Paul goes into these synagogues, and you'll see that he reasons in the synagogues from the scriptures. So what is he doing? He's probably taking the Old Testament and writing Genesis, going all the way through the Old Testament, see how all the Old Testament foreshadows a Messiah, a Savior, one he'll come. And he, so he's reasoning with them from the scriptures to present the gospel, to present Christ. And he does that. And he knew the law very well. You know, right? Uh, um, he said, zealous for the law, was raised to know the law, Jewish. And Paul was awesome. He, he was raised Jewish and Greek, Gentile father, Jewish mother, Jewish grandmother. So you think about how God prepared him uh, to not only to uh, minister to the Jews. That was in Romans 9 and 10. His heart is for his Jewish brethren to be saved. He longs for that. Um, but he's also well suited to minister to Gentiles because of his Greek background as well with his, his uh, father, his side of the family. So he's ministering there uh, in Thessalonica. But some of the people who don't believe get hostile toward him and they run him out of Thessalonica. He, he and uh, um, Silas, Timothy, get out of there. And then he, he goes a little, you know, he goes west, uh, probably about 15, 20 miles, over to Berea. Do you remember what the Bible says in Acts about the Berea? It says they were more noble, for they received the word of God. They sought it, they were open to it. And he's having success in Berea. People are coming to faith in Christ. And so he's training them, establishing them as a church, developing, looking for some leaders. And so he gets trying to plant a church over in Berea. And these Jews in Thessalonica hate him so much, they find out he's over in Berea. And so some of these hostile Jews come to Berea after him. (laughs) Uh, They're going to get him. And so the brethren at Berea slip 
slip Paul out of there, kind of get him out of there. Uh, Silas and Timothy stay behind and they take Paul down south towards the area of Greece and Achaia and he goes south there into a, a city uh, called Athens. If you have your Bible, look at Acts chapter 17 verse 1 and it says, while waiting for them, verse 1 of Acts 17, who's he waiting for? He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. And so in Acts 17, while he's waiting for those brothers, uh, he, he says the same thing. He begins to engage the Athenians. And the Bible says that he goes to the synagogue and he tries to reason with the Jews. Then he goes into, it says, into the marketplace to reason with Gentiles and Jews. And then he gets an opportunity to speak to pure Gentiles, Epicureans and Stoic philosophers at the Oropagus to preach the gospel. So he's not idle just sitting around kicking back in a hotel room waiting for Silas and Timothy to get there. He's still, he's on mission, man. He's living for Christ, sharing the gospel. And there at Athens, uh, there's at the end of that in Acts 17, there was responses to the gospel, verses 32 through 34. It said, some mocked him. So when he presents Christ, when he presents the gospel, some mock, and then it, verse there, it says, some delayed, we'll, we'll hear you later. You ever know people like that kind of put it off? They don't want to respond to the gospel. So they delay. Well, to delay is to reject it. Really, you're rejecting the gospel if you delay. And then, but in there, now in verse 40, but some believed. And so, uh, that's kind of what's happening. And so he moves from Athens about five or ten miles, goes a little more west over to Corinth. You heard of Corinth, right? That's where he eventually writes the letters back to the Corinthians. So here's what all of that to say. Here's why this is important for understanding Thessalonians. When he goes over to Corinth, um, it says in, in chapter, chapter 18, verse 1 of, of, of uh, Acts, he goes over to Corinth, and then Silas and Timothy rejoin, finally get to it. And so these three brothers are back together in the city of Corinth. They've been separated. When they get there, you remember Paul flees Thessalonica, right? And so when he gets, when, these, when they reconvene in Corinth, Silas and Timothy, especially Timothy, Start telling Paul how, because Paul's been gone away for some time now, and these Christians back in Thessalonica are new Christians, new believers. And so Timothy says, Paul, let me tell you about what's going on with the, with the work up in Thessalonica. With these Christians, with this church, they're having some issues, having some problems. And so we looked at this, chapters 1 and 2 last week. So while Paul is in Corinth, at Timothy, because Timothy had given him some information, that's when Paul writes this letter back to the Thessalonians. So he writes this letter, and then he says, Timothy, he just got there. <laughs> and now he says, go back, which is a, I don't forget the mileage, but it's a long, pretty long haul if you go from uh, that Macedonian region come down, I'm, I'm probably going to guess off the top of my head, it's probably 100, 200 miles, I don't know. Pretty good haul. Um, Paul had come south, he traveled on foot, and then they sailed part of the way, went south uh, from the port, came back in, then went up into Athens, probably 30, 40 miles, and maybe 10, 20 miles over into Corinth. 
So he writes the letter back to them to encourage them, sends Timothy back and, uh, to, and to deliver the letter, to send greetings and to encourage. And so Timothy goes back up to Thessalonica uh, for, with this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And he shares the letter. These believers read that, read this instruction, this encouragement from the Apostle Paul. And then Timothy goes <laughs> on foot, gets on a ship, goes back down south, comes back up into Athens, probably went over to Greece, uh, Corinth again, where Paul is. And he said, and Paul said, what? Well, how'd it go? How'd it go? What? How they do it? Well, when, when you read my letter to them, how did they respond to the letter? Did they, were they receptive? How, so how are they doing it? Timothy said, well, it, it was good. They're, they're doing pretty good, but they've got some questions, some more questions. And Paul said, well, what were their questions? Well, uh, some of them, they're, they're, they're going through some afflictions. They're having some hard times. There's some persecution. Remember Paul, the Jewish element there that ran you out of there, that were ready to kill you? Well, there's these Jews up there are not happy with these Christians either. So they're having some difficulties. And and uh, there's some other people that have come in there and have dis- kind of distorted some of the things that you've taught them. And so Paul says, huh. And, and one of the questions they had, Paul talked about uh, the return of Christ, that one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come again. And so when you read 2 Thessalonians, because they're in Corinth, now he writes the second letter. And then what does he tell Timothy? He tells Timothy, go back. <laughs> so he got to Corinth. Delivers news, Paul writes a letter, sends him back, then he comes back, then Paul sends him back up there again and takes the second letter. And evidently there were some people in the church that had that come, had just, uh, they, they, some of them thought that Jesus was going to come back quickly. And when they were suffering and going through some difficulties and Christ hadn't come back yet, there seems to be some, some idea, some people that maybe begin to... Uh, to put out a message that Christ had already come, that his coming was spiritual. It wasn't physical. It wasn't literal. That Jesus wasn't literally going to come again, but he was going to, that the, when he came at Pentecost through his spirit, that was the second coming. And some, some, so some were, had, were confused about the second coming of Christ. And so on the second letter, he clears that up. They'd had some loved ones die. Some of their family members had died. And they thought that Jesus was going to come back and when Jesus hadn't come back yet and their family members had died they had some questions so what happens to our loved ones who have died Jesus hasn't come back yet what happens to them so those are some of the things that Paul addresses in the second letter uh, the poor Timothy <laughs> you know poor he just he got him just going going but he stays faithful so let's uh, let me share a couple things with you so that makes does that make sense it just it makes perfect sense, really, when you if you really think about what's going on and why these letters were written. And so, yeah, we saw from First Thessalonians that um, Paul commends their love, commends their faith, their peace. Uh, in First uh, Thessalonians two is one of my favorite um, ch- chap, one of my favorite chapters in First Thessalonians because they're. Paul writes this letter and he refers to himself as a nursing mother. What kind of image do you get when you think about a mother 
nursing a, a little baby girl, a little baby boy, holding that little baby close, warmth. That's pretty intimate, right? A mother nursing a child. And Paul said, when we were with you, we related to you as a nursing mother does to her child. Doesn't that sound very pastoral and very warm? We, we served among you like a nursing mother. And then down in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, and we, we, we related to you as a father. As a father uh, relates to his family. And so moms and dads together relate to their kids. So he said, well, you know, and Paul uses this parenting imagery for, for servant, for leadership. That good leaders function. Uh, you, some of you teach Sunday school classes, and those of you who lead you, you want you want your leadership to be warm, to be personal, to be caring. Uh, sometimes you have kind of ex- function as a dad, where you got to remind people, okay, now these are the guidelines, these are the rules, right? As a dad, and you occasionally you might have to even enforce. <laughs> this is how we got to kind of take a stand and. So this is how things are going to be. So, so that's good leader. Just some good leadership lessons there. Uh, very warm. Uh, they're suffering, going through some difficulty. And Paul mentions in the first letter that they're waiting for the return of Christ. You see that in chapter 1, verse, two, verse 10. But you also see that in chapter 2, verse 19. He wants them to be ready for uh, Christ's return. And he said, so you want to be living a, a, a kind of lifestyle so that when the Lord returns, you're ready. Because we'll also see in 2 Thessalonians where he says the return of Christ will be like a thief in the night. Right? There'll be, what, do you, what do you think about night? Nighttime people sleep and a thief in the night comes in when you're not prepared, when you least expect it. Jesus said that the, the, the Lord Jesus will come again. And he said, for those who, who don't know Christ, the return of Christ, for those who are not saved, don't know the Lord, don't know God, he said the return of Christ will be like a mother who suddenly has birth pangs, goes into labor, goes into travail. So it'll be a painful time for those who don't know Christ, who have delayed uh, making any kind of profession of faith. And... Um, be, to be totally honest with you, when, when I think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I, I do think that it could happen any time, I, I really do, um, I have mixed feelings about it. There's a part of me that thinks it, that will be an, an exciting, awesome day. Think about it. When Christ comes again, splits the eastern sky, the dead in Christ will rise, First Thessalonians 4, that was Paul, what, uh, what Don was mentioning to, to us, right? Um, and think about the return of Christ and how awesome that is going to be. He sets up this new millennial reign and then sets up a new heaven and new earth and restores things without sin. I mean, that's going to be amazing. But there's another side of me that, that uh, hopes he doesn't come back yet because I think about the nations who are lost and I think about some family members that I, I have concerns for spiritually. And so for me, when I think about the, the end of this day, the end of this dispensation and age and the return of Christ, I have, it conjures up a lot of mixed, a lot of mixed, mixed emotions and a lot of different ideas for me. Um, 
So any of you relate to that? Think about that. So um, by the way, I'd mention, uh, so let's, this week's reading is First Thessalonians starting in chapter 3. So let's pick up there. Chapter 3, um, Timothy is sent up there to encourage them. Paul is concerned about their faith. Um, look, at, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. He's concerned about their faith. For this reason, when I can no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Concerned about their faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So temptation, um, cares of this world, pressures of life, spiritual opposition, love of the world, love of the flesh, all these temptations that we face, uh, it goes back to, I think about the way people respond to the word, which is the purpose of the parable of the sower and the seed. Some of it falls on pathway ground, some on stony ground, some on thorny ground, some on good soil. And so there's many who hear the word, but they don't respond in faith to the word. And so Paul is concerned about their faith. Uh, those of you in Sunday school classes, we as a church, I certainly do as a pastor, I care about people's faith. Because one of the things that I know is all of us are going to go through trials. All of us are going to go through difficulties, job losses, uh, uh, sickness, disease, death. We're, we're going to go through all kinds of things. And I've said this before that one of the things I've realized as I get older is life can be hard. All kinds of trial difficulties. And every person that I know is trying to figure out how to cope. People cope with life in different ways, don't they? And you and I cope through faith in God, through faith in Christ, faith in the gospel. That gospel that God uh, loves us, he's with us. And he's overcome sin, he's overcome death, we have a hope, and so we, we cling to our faith. And, and so I, I, I'm concerned about people in our church family that when they go through difficulty and hardship, what do they do? They get discouraged. Some drink, some take drugs, and some just numb themselves by working, becoming workaholics, and some try to cope by gaining more money so they think they can... You know, if they have enough money, that'll make you happy. It just people cope in all kinds of ways. But you and I, as followers of Christ, know the only real way to cope is to have peace with God and to have faith in Him. And so Paul is concerned about their faith. And you see that in chapter 3, verse 5. Um, one of the themes of the book of Thessalonians is he uses that phrase over and over again. Your faith, your faith, your faith. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. See it? Your faith. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. From you is sounded forth, 
uh, from the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. So that no one should shake you by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed uh, to this. Oh, that's a wrong, wrong reference there. Um, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith. Um, verse 7. Therefore, brethren, in all of our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. And so that's a big deal. Um, he's concerned about their faith. Concerned about their faith. If I was teaching a Sunday school class, I'd be concerned about the faith of everyone in my Sunday school class. I'm concerned about the faith of everyone in the church. Our, our faith. Are they growing in faith? Are they trusting God? Are they believing in His Word more and more and more? Are they clinging to Him? Faith. And so that's a big theme. Uh, chapter 4 uh, point out just a couple of things here. He's concerned about their personal sanctification. What does it mean? What does sanctification mean? What does it mean to sanct? What is something, if something is sanctified, what does that mean? Do you know what the word literally means? Sanctify? To sanctify? Right, we see it literally means to set apart, to sanctify, to consecrate. Um, uh, the Greek word that we have for holy, hagios, to make holy, is the same thing. Something that's the holy Bible, right? It's set apart. It's uh, God's word. And so you and I are to be sanctified, set apart. Uh, we're not to be like the world. Um, if, if, if you and I are like the world, uh, we have no distinctive there's, there's nothing peculiar about us. There's nothing different about us. If, if we're not salty, what happens? Jesus said if, the, if a salt loses its saltiness, it loses its savor, it's good for nothing except to be what? Trampled underfoot. Uh, light, we're the light of the world. You don't put light under a basket, under a bushel. You don't hide light under your bed. Your light, like a lampstand. In that first century, they had, in their, their homes, they had little shelves, and they would take little oil lanterns or candles, and they would set them up on a shelf. It's because when that light was there against that wall, it would illumine the, the room. So you don't take a, a lampstand and set it up on the shelf and then cover it over. Sanctification. If we lose our distinctive, we're not really useful. If a church, if we as a congregation are not distinct, if we're not growing in sanctification, we'll lose our effectiveness. Um, and the good news is who sanctifies us? Do we sanctify ourselves? No. Holy Spirit, working through His Word, so we abide in Christ. Holy Spirit works through us, works through His Word, and He sanctifies us. He he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He grows us uh, to be more pleasing. So in chapter 4, Paul is concerned about them that they would know how the, their bodies, how they would know how to conduct themselves in personal sanctification. My body, my mind, my lifestyle. 
want it all to be set apart for the Lord. And so Paul is, uh, he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality, but to, uh, to, to live sanctified, consecrated lives that are set apart for the Lord and His glory. So you see that in chapter 4. And then as Don mentioned, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a uh, great verse, they had lost some loved ones. And people had died. Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so they had some questions. What happens to them? And so as he started out, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, I would not have you uninformed. I, would have, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have what? What's the phrase he uses there? Those who have fallen asleep. Well, what is that phrase fallen asleep referring to? Those who've died. I want you to know. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed about your loved ones who have fallen asleep. They're Christians, they're followers. And he goes on, for if we believe, shares the gospel, and Christ rose again, that Christ also will come again, the trumpet of God, the voice of an archangel. And when he comes, you don't want to be anywhere near a cemetery. Right? Why? Because ground is going to be crazy. The dead in Christ are going to be raised. Those who have died at sea are going to be raised. All of those dead in Christ are going to be raised. And they're, they're, as Christ comes back, the spirit of that person. So James defines death. He says it's, it's not a scientific definition. You know, science says death is measured by heart activity, uh, brain activity, and lung activity. Are they breathing? Is their heart pumping? Is there any brain activity? So James has not given us a, a medical scientific definition of death, but James defined it as a separation where the spirit separates from the body. And the spirit goes on to be with the Lord and the body goes back to the earth. Spiritual, kind of his definition of death, a separation. But when Christ comes back, he says the spirit of those who have departed in the present. Remember Paul in Philippians 1, better to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right? So there's a spiritual separation. So when Christ comes again, our spirit is going to be come back and is going to be reunited with our body. And it'll be a different kind of body, be a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the, the, the seed that goes into the ground, it comes, comes up more glorious than the seed that went in. And so he's talking about our resurrection, our bodies, our new raised bodies are going to be glorious. And they're going to be different too. Because I think about the Jesus resurrected body, he still had, phys there was a physical component to it. The disciples could still touch him. Remember in the garden, one instance, Mary, uh, when she sees Jesus and recognizes that he's raised from that, she, she touches his feet. In other instances, he says, don't touch me yet. Not yet. But he had a, there was a physical component to that. The disciples in the upper could touch him. So he had a part of his resurrected body was glorious. It had a physical dimension to it, but yet there was also a spiritual dimension. In the upper room, they're all closed in. All doors are locked. Windows are closed. And he appears in the room. And then he disappears. So it's, there's physical dimension to our resurrected body, but it's also there's some kind of dimension where we're no longer limited to some, some physical uh, laws and realities. So it's going to be a glorious body. 
And so 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 13, this is our hope. He says, so don't, do not grieve as those who have no hope. And by the way, I've heard people say this, and it's wrong when they say it. We still grieve as Christians. So when you lose a loved one, or when you go through something really, um, there's a grieving process, isn't there? There's grief. There's anger and denial and bitterness and bargaining and all the Kubler-Ross and some of the others who've studied grief aspects. Uh, we grieve. And Jesus grieved. You know, remember he cried? Shortest, what's the shortest verse in the Bible in Luke? You remember? Two words. Jesus wept. He grieved. He was sad. He grieved. Um, and the Bible said, describes him as one who's acquainted with grief and suffering in his humanity. And so we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope. Um, now that, that's something that really excites me, and I, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like one day to think that I'm going to see my dad again. See my grandpa and grandma, my family members. You ever, you, ever, you ever try to get your mind around that? What that's going to be like, Miss Jamie? See your daughter? You know, see our love? I mean, that's, I, I'm just trying to imagine that. That's our hope. And our hope is because, 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ defeated death. He overcame sin. He defeated death. The grave was not able to hold him, and he defeated it. He was raised. And so Paul says, we have this same hope. And so 1 Thessalonians 4.13, John talking about the midnight cry. He comes back. He steps back. And uh, all the dead in Christ will be raised with the Lord. So you know, my, my comment about not being in a cemetery, those graves start opening up and stuff start flying out of there. I don't... <laughs> may not be or be around cemetery. Uh, then, he, then he closes in chapter 5 um, and he, that's when he talks about this return of Christ will come like a thief in the night. Sudden destruction. And he says in chapter 5 verse 4 he says I don't want this day to overtake you. I don't want you to be caught off guard. And he says stay awake. Remain sober. Watch. Be ready. Uh, for in a day and an hour that you don't expect it. I'll come again. The parable, uh, you remember uh, the parable in the New Testament about the wise and the foolish virgins? You remember those, these young ladies, maidens, uh, who had not yet married? And, uh, and so the idea is when the groom comes, you, you want to be ready. And some were ready and some weren't. And, and so uh, we want to be ready for the coming of Christ. I want to live today like Jesus might come today, that he might come tomorrow. Do you, do you think we really live with that sense of expectancy and urgency as Christians? I'm not sure we do. I don't think that I do. I get focused on this world and life and lose that, but, you know, it'd be good for me to think about that every day. Lord, what if this was my last day? What if you come back? What, Lord Jesus, what if you came back tonight in the morning? How should that make a difference in the way I live with a sense of urgency? So that's a, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Yeah. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And then 
in First Thessalonians 5. Let me close and uh, we'll stop here. Look at chapter 5, starting. Um, first of all, go back up to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 18. Notice after he describes this second coming of Christ and our hope, he says in verse 18 what? Therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always ask yourself what? What is it there for? <laughs> therefore, well, what is it there for? He's always referring back. Since I've, since I've said all this, he says, therefore, comfort each other with these words. Comfort each other. And then he talks about the day of the Lord in chapter 5 and look at verse 11 after he talks about the second coming of Christ. Let's be ready, be watchful. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you do. What does it mean to edify? Edify literally means to build a fire, to make a fire, to build up, to encourage, to strengthen. Comfort each other and strengthen each other just also as you do with these words. And then he closes, verse 12, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. You know what that's saying? It means we need to be respectful of spiritual leaders in the church. And I'm not, that's, this is, that's a principle that's much bigger than me. But those who are over us in the Lord, there's their leaders and who are responsible, who are going to give an account for their spiritual leadership. And, and the, so he says to be respectful of them, esteem them very highly. Verse 14, we exhort you, brethren, and he says four things here to us, all of us as Christians. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort those who are faint-hearted. Uphold the weak and be patient with everyone. Warn those who are unruly. I shared this with staff today. That word unruly is a, is a, is a military term that describes soldiers who marched, right? You, they stayed in step. They're marching. And so that's, and those who are unruly are those who are out of step. They don't, they're not in step with the beat. They're not in step with the cadence. You, you know any believers like that? You just say, I'm going to march to the beat of my own drum. He says, what? Warn those who are out of step, who are unruly. And then just some great things here. Uh, comfort the faint-hearted. You know, believers who are having a hard time, comfort them, encourage them. Um, uphold the weak. Be patient with all. Verse 15, make sure that you don't render evil for evil. Any of you ever get mad at someone and think, boy, I'd like to get back at them. <laughs> right? Strike back. When you're driving your car and somebody cuts you off, don't render evil for evil. Right? I think some, you know, sometimes the way we drive our cars might be the greatest indicator of what's in our heart. Stay, you know, do you, uh, do you get wigged out when you drive a car? People cut you off, you know. Render, don't, no rendering evil for evil. Um, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for everyone, even, even those who don't deserve it. Grace. Verse and look at these, a bunch of short admonitions. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
in everything. Give thanks. It doesn't say to give thanks for everything, but give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Be thankful. Do not quench the spirit, verse 19. Right, The person of the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Do not quench or despise prophecies. What's prophecy? It's ministry of the word, prophesy. And Paul said to the Corinthians, I would much rather prophesy, you know, one word than speak a thousand words in an unknown tongue. Nobody understands. Prophecy. Prophecy is taking the word, presenting it, and presenting it in a way that builds people up. You know, we, we need, we need, prof- so prophesying, uh, test all things, hold fast to what is good, you know, hold fast to what is good and abstain, abstain from every form of evil. And then he closes with a benediction. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless above reproach at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great letter. And we'll look at First Thessalon- or Second Thessalonians 2 because there's some eschatology starting there in chapter 2 about the, before Christ comes because some of them had thought that Jesus had already come. Maybe they'd missed it or his coming was just a spiritual, wasn't a real physical, literal coming. And so they had some confusion about that. And so he said, no, no, no. I want you to sure the day of the Lord has not come yet because before he comes, there's going to be two things that comes. First of all, humanity is going to become more and more rebellious, more, more rebellious towards God. And he said, there's going to be an antichrist who comes. And so I'll talk, we'll, we'll pick up there and talk about that next, uh, next uh, Tuesday. We'll talk about this eschatology a little bit in times of rebellion. Uh, well, I think that's happening now. Uh, but this Antichrist that, I, uh, that the Scripture is pretty clear on. First John describes him, Antichrist, spirit of Antichrist, so we'll, we'll look at that. Man of lawlessness, uh, he's referred to a different way, so we'll look at that, okay? All right.